Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here for this. I want to I begin, as you're getting your, your handouts, to just make a couple of, of notes. Um, one of the things, I, I said this last time, if you weren't with us on the Creation Views uh, Cornerstone Forum that we did a few weeks ago, I, I noted the fact that um, part of the method to the madness in uh, doing these forums is there's a number of, of issues related both to our culture but also to Christian discipleship that um, we would love to drill into at a, in a deeper way as a congregation seeing the pertinent need um, to be clear and to answer questions and to provoke thoughts over key areas of Christian discipleship. And the series that we're presently in, the series in the book of Genesis, affords itself at a number of different angles to pause and to say, we've been talking about some things, now I want to look at them from a little different vantage point. And, and talk about them a little bit more in depth. And so what we're seeking to do, we'll, we're seeking to do these monthly. So just be, uh, have your eyes peeled for each of these gatherings um, so that you can come in and participate in them. We're seeking to do them uh, monthly for these first few chapters of Genesis because there's so much foundational in Genesis 1 to 3 that unpacked through the whole narrative of Scripture. We feel like it's really important that we pause when we get to one of those and simply talk to you a little bit about some of the matters that lurk underneath the surface of the text. It's probably not preaching material exactly, but in a context like this can begin to get us thinking and dialoguing together about key aspects of the Christian life. And we did creation views because that's one that is a significant debate within Christian circles. How are we to best understand the, the days and the work of God in Genesis 1 and 2? And so we took some time together um, three or four weeks ago to simply walk through some prevailing views and generally accepted conservative views of looking at Genesis um, one, to, uh, 1 and 2, and I was grateful for, for your response. I do want uh, to hear from you. We want to hear from you because we're hoping um, that we're hitting the right content as we're going through that's important to you and will serve you as the church of God as we're prepared to bear witness for Christ in the 21st century. Well, on that note, one of the reasons we stopped at Creation Views was the debate inside the circles of, of the Christian church. But one of the reasons we're pausing today on gender and sexuality is because of the roiling debates within our culture and within our community at large. And also within the ranks of the evangelical church, as we see redefinitions of marriage advanced and varieties of sexual um, activity and expression being lauded and encouraged within our wider community. We want to, as the local church, as faithful to the scriptures, to seek to define and delimit very clearly what it is that the Word of God says surrounding these matters. And so we want you to be trained and equipped in this. Now, there are some of you in this room who are parents. There are some of you in this room who are grandparents. 
Um, there are some of you in this room that are, that are young from different generations. Um, I want you to know this is a significant generational issue that we're talking about here when we come to gender and sexuality. Um, as you look at the statistics that are pouring out of various groups, Christian and non-Christian, regarding perceptions about gender and sexuality and beliefs and practices, you'll see very stark differences between generational lines. And part of what we're seeing is that the media and the present-day onslaught of the cultural narrative regarding sexuality is winning the day among the younger generation among us. And what that means is that if we're not active as the body of Christ, both as a church formally, but also parents and grandparents and families specifically, then there will be others who will be very active to explain all of these matters in a completely different way and contrary to the Word of God. And so there is a bit of a training that's assumed within a part of what we're seeking to do in this time together to both find a language by which we can talk about these things together in our home fellowship groups, among membership, but also as parents and grandparents thinking about the next generation. It's also a place where we might raise questions We won't always get to raise them in the context of this public setting, though we may get the chance to do that today. But as happened last time as we talked about creation views, this this afternoon I'm sitting with one of our home fellowship groups. I'm going to be talking about um, science and, and the Bible and going further into what we were able to talk about three weeks ago together. That's my hope with this too, is that this is the beginning of a dialogue, not a monologue, and everything's done. Okay, so I want you to see this as hopefully stirring discussion within our body on extremely key issues um, relating to Christian discipleship in our day and time. And so I hope that you'll receive it in that manner. Um, Like last time when we gathered for the Cornerstone uh, Forum, uh, it's impossible to be able to address all of the issues at play within a subject like gender and sexuality in 45 minutes. That's just an impossible feat, so I don't feel the pressure to have to do that. I'm going to be very specific about some of the things that I'm going to say today. I have given you two handouts, and the two handouts are, are, there's a reason for those two handouts. One I'm not going to reference at all. You'll see um, the United States Supreme Court being talked about in the top of one of those documents about same-sex marriage as that verdict came down a few years ago. And we as a congregation and as elders published a what's called a white paper or a theological paper about our perspective on what went on and how you want, how, how you, we wanted you to know how we would sit as a congregation on these issues. Now all of that, this is part of the joy of being a part of a conservative Presbyterian denomination, all of that we already held to. It wasn't like we had to like think it up on the fly. There was lots of writing already been done. But we did want to positionally think about that as a local congregation. I think I gave you 14 points in that particular paper on what you can expect and anticipate from Cornerstone in response to the movement towards 
uh, the normalcy of homosexuality and, and same-sex marriage and how that changes some things about how we relate as a congregation to the outside culture. But for the most part, um, it doesn't change anything dramatically. It just causes us to be more attentive to particular issues that we know will be challenges in the days to come in terms of discipleship within the body of Christ and bearing witness for Christ in the, in the world that we, that we live in. So that is for your reading later on. Please don't get too bogged down in that. Most of you have seen it. Just know I gave it to you so that you'll have it and you can take it home and read it at your leisure. The other one, Cornerstone Forum, Gender and Sexuality, I do want to walk through with you. Um, and, and this one, as you'll hopefully see today, is in, intended to both speak to two primary issues. So if you came here today hoping that I would address tran, transgender issues or intersex issues, we may have opportunities to do that in the future. I won't be able to do that today. My hope is to be able to deal with biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, what does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? Um, what's the relationship between male and female look like? How's it look like from the Bible's standpoint? We'll be rooting it significantly in the scriptures. And then what is biblical view of sexuality? What does that look like for a husband and a wife? And what does normalcy look like within the sexual ethic that the Lord has called us to as husbands and wives? Now, part of the reason I want to go at it in this direction is undoubtedly most of us probably entered the room thinking more about how the world is messing up these things than we thought about how we should be living faithfully within these things. And I'd like to focus on the latter rather than the former. I think one of the significant reasons we're seeing both social breakdown around sexual issues is because the church has been in disarray for generations on this. In terms of our own practices within the church, and our own unwillingness to address some of the significant sexual issues that happen within the body of Christ. So I think it's important that we have proactive and positive instruction upon what it means to be husbands and wives, what it means to be male and female, what it means to have a healthy sexual life together as a couple, and what the Bible speaks about with regards to all of that. And don't get too nervous. I won't get into all of the weeds associated with this dialogue, but I will raise some questions. And part of the reason I'm raising the questions is because I'm a pastor and spend time with a lot of people on a lot of issues. And this is an issue that comes up dominantly, dominantly in pastoral work, okay? That's part of the reason we're addressing it. And part of the reason this one forum is not going to do it. And uh, we'll continue to open up this dialogue in the days to come. Okay, so I want to start by simply looking here at an opening quote from someone whom you might not suspect I'd quote. Um, Pope Benedict XVI, um, and he in many ways on these matters is a, uh, or was, just Joseph Ratzinger, in case you're wondering who, who's Pope Benedict XVI. Um, he was a, and is a significant proponent, has been, on faithful biblical uh, gender and sexuality. And in his Christmas message in 2012, he took this on head-on in a way that caused an incredible uh, media stir. And I think it's important that we see, part of what I want to display as well, is that this is not a Protestant issue or a Catholic issue. This is, this is in many ways a pan-Christian issue. 
Okay, this works across denominational lines. And there will be times where it would be wise to partner even across those wide denominational lines for the purpose of the strength that comes with holding to biblical orthodoxy on issues of gender and sexuality. And so I think it's important that you hear from a former pope something pretty significant that showed up in his message and I think raises the questions for us uh, today. So listen to what he says. He says, The very notion of being of what being a human really means, is being called into question. Sex is no longer being given an element of nature, a given element of nature that man has to accept and personally make sense of. It is a social role that we choose for ourselves. The profound falsehood of this theory and the anthropological revolution uh, contained within it is obvious. People dispute the idea that they have a nature given by their bodily identity that serves as a defining element of the human being. They deny that their nature and decide that it is not something previously given to them, but that they make it for themselves. According to the biblical creation account, being created by God as male and female pertains to the essence of the human creature. This duality is an essential aspect of what being human is all about as ordained by God. And I think probably many of us in this room could say yes and amen to the things that is being described there by Pope Benedict. But one of the things I want to note in there is that he's showing for us a shift in the way that gender consciousness actually works in the late 20th and 21st century. We've coming out of multiple generations where it has been assumed that we can choose our identity, choose who it is we want to be. It's most important that I become self-realized with all of who I am, all of my gifts, all of my wants, and all of my desires. In that context, the air of breathing that the shift of that logic has moved deeply into the aspects of sexuality and gender. The reason that's important is there are many Christians, and I would argue many even Christian evangelical denominations today, that speak of intimacy with God or their relationship with God as primarily in self-fulfillment categories. God is there to basically make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and he cares a little bit about my behavior. But mainly he wants, um, as Christian Smith has noted, a kind of moral therapeutic deism. He's not really involved in my life too deeply. He's more like a therapeutic God helping me realize myself, and he's a little bit interested in morals, but not to the exclusion of my happiness. If, if you've ever picked up that air in sermons and messages and in wider evangelical culture, I just want you to know that that logic plays directly into gender and sexuality confusion. Okay? It, it, its very focus is saying, I am the center of the universe. Rather than God is the center of the universe, and all of what he is and all he has made me to be is what I must be conformed into the nature of. So instead of appealing merely to the longings that are within the heart to be satisfied by God, we have to also have a counter-narrative that says there are longings in your heart that should never be satisfied but should be changed by God in order to be satisfied. Now the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you're delighting in the Lord, then your desires will be God's desires, and then he will give you his desires that are in your heart. That's what we want. That's what we want to see actually happen within the midst of the person. And so there are desires that we can call that are creationally good because we're designed for them. And there are desires that we can say have been turned askew, twisted, perverted. And now those desires actually have to be normalized according to the pattern of Scripture. And that's our prayerful pursuit. So just to note that if your parenting model or your concept of understanding how to raise someone is primarily in self-fulfillment categories, that confuses often the playground when we get to gender and sexuality. So we just want to be really careful about how we're nuancing that and how we're, we're talking about it. So Pope Benedict is saying we've gotten to the point now where if wants, my desires, and my own fulfillment is the center by which the universe revolves, then if I want to be some other gender or I want to act out in some other different sexuality that's not necessarily prescribed in Scripture, then the logic follows that God would, be want, God would want me to be happy and fulfilled in that way. And we're seeing a lot of evangelicalism begin to flirt with that kind of message. Okay, so what we want to do is a couple of minutes, spend time in where we've been, which is Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and say instead of, our, of the cultural narrative, instead of our internal desires, or even the sense of our experience, what is the norming norm of Scripture? How does it actually normalize the way in which we were made and its purposes? And I want you to see first that man and woman are created equal in the image of God. We've discussed this a little bit uh, in the context of the message and the messages that we've, we've had on Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I want to reference specifically Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's a very unique rendering in the Hebrew, and it's very specific. It's meant to say that mankind, as expressed in two genders, male and female, are equally emblazoned with, impressed upon with, the image of God in man. So there's an equality to the nature in which man and woman bear the image of Almighty God and thus share in the dignity of that image together. And we need to be clear on that. That there is no suppression or even change in equilibrium regarding the equality of the image of God in man. That has been a problem throughout human history. It's not as much of an issue in quite the way that it is here in the 21st century today. But over the years, that's been a significant issue, both outside and inside the church, raising both sexes to an equal status of the image of God, both in terms of recognition and in terms of treatment. It's the way that Galatians 3 puts it, that there is no slave, there is no free, there is no male, there is no female. We are all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can interpret that verse wrongly. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the goal of that is to say in Christ and in the image of God, we are all equal in terms of our dignity in the image of God. But look, secondly, God created within that image, equal as it is to both male and female, sexual differentiation. The terms male and female are specifically used in Genesis 1, 
27. That needs to be noted and appreciated deeply. That there are a, what's called a bimorphic uh, gender expression. Uh, not a spectrum where we're more or less male or female. But two binary categories. A duality is what's being described there. A male and a female. A sexual differentiation. I want you to see that the Bible does not argue that male and female are social or cultural categories that were engineered long ago, of which through a variety of reasons have taken on a life of their own and thus can be changed or morphed by a culture and tradition because it's really a creation of man. The way the Bible puts it is their fundamental distinction within mankind is embedded within the very biology of male and female in the human race. I want you to see as well, just to note this, you'll have talking points as you think through this, this is before the fall. So it's not like gender is one of these distortions that came out of the fall from Genesis chapter 3. It is ordained by God and these sexual categories are structured for the very purpose of a multi-splendored image. That when we look at the image of God in woman, we see the image of God differently expressed, but in equality with man. And when we look at the image of God in man, we see it differently expressed in the woman, but with equality with the woman. Both of those things, the same and the difference, are both very important. And look thirdly then, God assigned man and woman the responsibility to relate to and rule over creation within their sexual differentiation. Now we could talk a lot about this on a number of fronts, but I just want to I just want to pull out for a second what we talked about a little bit in the first service, which was Genesis one twenty eight, where male and female, mankind is given the charge to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. And take dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Now, one of the ways, and I think a, a true and faithful way, there's probably more than one angle to look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This, I think, is core for the point we're trying to make. Is that one of the primary ways that we rule or take dominion or subdue or bring peace in the world as human beings is through procreation. How is it that we rule and take rule over the course of the world? We have babies. We raise them. We raise them up to exercise gifts to reflect the glory of God. The world is big. One couple can't rule it all. It's embedded within the concept of being fruitful and multiply that we can't take dominion nor reflect as humanity. Now we're talking about individual people. But as humanity, we cannot reflect the calling God has placed upon our lives as human beings without procreation, with the differentiation of male and female, as core to what it means to answer the calling of a human being. It's core. It's not optional. Okay, That's in the imperative. This is 126 to 28. And so it's important to note, I think, from the very beginning, that these two genders under the equal image of God with the assumption of, in the commanding voice and tone, will be those who are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and that will be the way in which the glory of the Lord spreads throughout the world. 
Okay, creation of mankind, male and female. I think pretty strongly we can see that from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and that's kind of where we've been together. So let's jump into a couple of other places as we look to point 2. What I'm referring here to, and what some of you will know as, the language of complementarianism. Complementarianism. And I'm noting Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and Ephesians 5, 22 through uh, 33, and I give you a bit of a summary statement so you can understand the difference here. And, and let me just note, because I don't want to be, be accused of not recognizing there are other views out there, even within the evangelical world, there's another very prevalent and prevailing view known as egalitarianism. And the egalitarianism speaks of the equal dignity of man and woman, both in the image of God but also that they assume equal roles, same roles, both within marriage and church and community. So equal both in their expression of the image of God. We share that with egalitarianisms, uh, those who hold egalitarianism. Where we're different is we say they don't actually have the same roles. They're different for a reason. And that reason points to the role, the God-given roles that the Lord has given to male and female. And so instead of them being egalitarian with regards to their role, they are, with regards to their role, complementarian. They're complementarian. Look at the definition here. With equality and dignity as it relates to the image of God and the mutual responsibility to rule over creation within their created sexual differences, God calls the man and woman to different roles. Okay, now if you look at Ephesians, just jumping ahead for a second and keeping an eye on our time, Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of the man as the head of the woman and the woman as in the role of submission in relationship to the man. And in Ephesians 5, the whole picture, you heard this, those of you who are in the early service, because we kind of, you know, we worry about that kind of language. What does that mean? And I understand that. I'm very sympathetic and respectful of that. But let me tell you what it means theologically. Here's what it means theologically. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in terms of their power and dignity, but they're different in terms of their role. And you're supposed to express them. That's your goal in life. Like, our goal in life is very singular, to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. So your gender is not really about you. It's about the reflection of the glory of God through you. Okay, that's just so important that we keep that in front of our minds because we're going to run real quickly to like, does that mean he mows the yard and I wash the dishes? No, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's not even talking about cooking. Like that's it, it, nothing, none of those things are even in view here. We're talking about what is intended in the different expression. And what I'm going to refer to as, I think, the dance of both the Trinity and married life that the scripture is seeking to give to us because it's absolutely beautiful. So this language of head of wife and this, or the husband as the head of the wife and wife is being submissive to her husband. Is, uh, is a very important distinction. And even before, something popping into my mind, even before I jump into those differences in Genesis 1 to 3 real quick so you can see this embedded in the created order, it's important that when you read Ephesians chapter 5, right in the opening of Ephesians chapter 5, many of you will note this in verse 21, it says each partner should be submissive to one another as unto the Lord, right? Well, godly male headship that's leading a family is always servant-minded with regards to his wife and children. He's always getting up under them and serving them. That's the goal of it. That's the vision for it. 
And godly, um, um, a godly wife who's in relationship to that loving husband is always eager to get up under him and the, and the children and support them in any way that she possibly can in order uh, to both bless and care for him and the family and her and the family and also to express the mutual service within the Godhead. That the Father is constantly serving and blessing the Son. The Son is constantly serving and blessing the Father. There, the Son is never saying, I wish I was the Father. He's never saying to the Holy Spirit, you get all the fun. You get to hang out and dwell in the hearts of people, and I don't get the chance to do that. Like None of that's going on in the Godhead. That goes on in your and my head because we're sinners, okay, and because we're sinned against. But the goal of this is that we be a living expression of the dance of the relationship that's going on in the Trinity, okay? And so in Ephesians chapter 5, it actually says man is the head of the wife. It's a position that he occupies, and with the wife, women, I hope this in some ways gives shape. It doesn't say you're in the role of submission. It says wives be submissive. It's an instruction. It's not so much a position you occupy as a posture that you inhabit. It's a posture that you inhabit. Then that's differently. The way it's stated in Ephesians chapter 5 is man is the, house, the head of the home. Wife is to be submissive to. It's in the instructive It's not in the state of being. So if you thought like women are like proverbially somehow underneath men, it means know that she's actively recognizing that that is her role of helper and she's moving towards it. So this means that no man has ever been instructed to put you in the role of submission. And if he thinks that, he's in trouble. But that it is a willing and loving role of which you say, this is how I am designed to be able to bless my husband and bless my children so that I can reflect the Trinity and the glory of God. So it's embracing who it is we are. Men, in other words, you can't forsake being the head. You, either, you are one. If you're a husband, you're head. You may be a bad one, but you are one. Okay? So you're in the role of leadership. Okay? Now, if you think about it, that makes total sense in relationship to Christ in the church. Is Christ the head of the church? Is he positionally? Yes. And we as the church are called to be submissive to Christ. But can we rebel? Yeah. We can step out of that position sinfully. Okay? So to recognize that it's part of the, the, the mirror that's going on in the text of Scripture is that God loves to see himself played out in the lives of his people. He takes delight in that. So complementarianism, five ways we see these different roles displayed in Genesis 1 and 3. And these are, these are ways where if you were working in the Hebrew, you know, we were doing exegetical Hebrew work, we would, we would go here. Um, and I can do that with you. So if you want to sit down and do that, we can do that. But I just want you to see that from the beginning, there is a, a headship and a submissive role that's in view. Uh, first of all, God creates man before he creates woman. Now, this is just so obvious with regards to the text. And if you're reading Genesis 1, 26 to 28, you'll see that he creates man and woman together. And then what it does, you know what Genesis 2 is? It microscopes down on, on day 6. And it says, what actually went on in that creation of man and woman? And what we see is there was a time lapse okay, between the two. We don't know. Again, we talked about creation views. We don't know how long necessarily that time lapse is, but long enough for God to be able to train Adam to long for and to see that he is alone and he ought not to be by virtue of his image. And so man is created to be for 
woman. And in that context of priority, you're seeing the picture of first or leader being described. If you go throughout, now let me push this a little bit further so you can see this. In the Old Testament, who was the leader of the family? The husband. In the next generation, who was the leader of the family? The firstborn son, the one who came first. Okay, This is a priority in the scripture, this first piece. Now God loves, as you've seen throughout the scripture, to subvert that for his own purposes, as he did with Jacob and Esau and many other contexts, right? He's been known to take the last and make them first, which is a beautiful thing. It's part of how the gospel actually works. But to know that that rhythm is already here in the pages of scripture that God chose to make man first in the order of creation. Secondly, God holds Adam responsible for the breaking of the word of God. If you go to Genesis 3.19 and you see the followingness of the curses, when God walks into the garden and he's looking for, for uh, man and woman, he says, where is the man? Where's Adam? He doesn't call out for Eve. He calls out for Adam. He speaks to Adam and Adam's sort of like, blah, 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 blah. her, you know, that's kind of what he does in that moment, right? Now, what is that indicating to us? It's indicating that no matter what she did, it's his deal. This is called, and we're not talking about covenant theology today, but we will. We're going to talk about this in the future because I want you to have this in place. This is called federal headship. Remember, we talk about dying in Adam or sinning in Adam, his sin. And you think to yourself, I thought Eve sinned. Yes, but he's the representative of the human race. We talk about Christ being the second Adam. We don't talk about Mary being the second Eve. We, just don't, we don't talk in that language. The Bible doesn't talk in that language. What we need to understand is the reason for that is sinfulness comes in and through the representative of the human race. Who is that? It is Adam. He is culpable. He is culpable. Okay, in terms of, of this. Now, if you, when we get to Genesis 3, you'll see that he was very culpable. Um, as she eats the fruit, it says he's standing there with her. You know, like, all right. I wonder if I should say something. That serpent looks sketchy. Uh, uh, talking animals? I, I, I don't know. He just stands there, and then she gives to him. Now, we're going to get to actually the interesting uh, order of that. Number three, God designates the woman to be the helper to Adam. Okay, if you, can, if you can see again the priority of the, the ordering, not in terms of equality of dignity, okay, keep sounding this alarm, in terms of the order, he makes Adam and he makes Eve in relationship to Adam. Okay, so, so there's a leadership piece that's there saying, this guy, in order to do what he's called to do, he's going to need her in right relationship with him. So he makes woman in relationship to what he has already made in man, which again sets forward Adam as the representative of the human race. Fourthly, Adam names Eve. Okay, naming if all the way throughout the scripture is an expression of one who is bestowing an honor on that one, one in whom is under your charge, one who is your responsibility. And here he is given, as we see in, in Genesis 2 today, a poetic name to Eve, Isha, as she comes out of man. And then fifthly, notice the serpent's attack represents a subversion of God's pattern of leadership. The serpent is smart. He says, I know that God's working through man as the representative, so he goes to woman. 
And uh, so the very pattern is to subvert the way in which God has actually ordered creation. And if you've been that boneheaded man and think, goodness, why did Eve eat, man, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good? I, I would have never been deceived. When you get to Genesis 3, you'll see that you know, there is Adam not doing what he's called to do, which he's told in Genesis 2.15 to protect and guard the garden. And he has allowed in an intruder who is speaking to his wife in deceptive ways, leading to destruction, and he stands there with her and does nothing. It's the perfect first example of male abdication. And we see it throughout the pages of Scripture, and we see it throughout history. Okay, so, so that's, I hope that you can see from the beginning. So it's sometimes argued that like Paul came up with this idea of headship. No, 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 no. This has been ordered from the beginning. This has been a part of the way in which the created order has been designed. Okay, let me jump down. Biblical definition of marriage. I give you, I give you several things here. Let's see how many did I give you? I give you six. Okay, I won't go through these at great detail, but if we're beginning to define marriage, um, how is it that we would define it? And I think the first word we need to begin to use is covenantal. It's covenantal. And I give you a definition that I won't work through there by Paul Williamson. There's many good definitions out there. But I want you to, to, to just distinguish between uh, the, what we'll say, because I'm preaching on this a little bit today. I'll, I'll pause on it. The popular notion of marriage in our day is contractual, not covenantal. The popular notion is contractual. You know, people go, what's in a piece of paper? We can live together. We can try this thing on. We get some benefits. We swap out on those benefits. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just, you know, get rid of the contract. It's just, just a piece of paper. That notion is, is strikes at the very heart of the nature of marriage because marriage is covenantal. It's a relational commitment that is actually bound together and ordained and established by God himself. It's a covenant in which you're forging with another that is for a lifetime. And the nature of that covenant is different. And sexual expression is actually the forging or the consummating of that covenant union. I want you to see, secondly, it's a sexual union. Both Genesis 1 and 2 indicate sexual intercourse. One flesh is an essential aspect to married life. Notice essential. We'll come back to that in just a second. Thirdly, it's a procreative union. The first command that God gives to man and woman is the command to, to procreate. What? This does not mean, okay, if you're out there and you're, we've not been able to have children or we didn't have children, our marriage is somehow flawed in, in some way. It does not mean to indicate that. The recognition in the fall is that our bodies do not function as they ought to function. That's part of even the gender confusion discussion that we'll, we will continue to, in, to engage in. I am not surprised that you have aberrant desires, I have aberrant desires every week, friends, every single week. There are things I have to put to death in my life. That's a part of what it means to be a sinful human being. It's walking in Christ. So recognizing that we have an array and all of our desires are not in line with the Lord and all of our desires that are aberrant are not equal to one another. We have different aberrant desires, right? Recognizing that that's a part of it. But one of the designs here that's a part of the marriage, is for procreation. Meaning that a couple's desire, if they're walking in line with the biblical sexual ethic, 
is that they would have children. They may not be able to have them, but they would have them. That that would be what God has designed it for. Fourthly, that it's a heterosexual union. Kind of noted this, male is paired with female to whom God gives the command to procreate. The assumption is male and female, if under the marriage union, you're called to bear children. Fifthly, that it would be monogamous. Genesis 2.24 establishes the principle of monogamy as the creational norm for marriage. Now, again, the clock is my enemy, but let me just note, polygamy is all over the Bible. Okay, And many scholars will draw this up regularly, even some of our greatest heroes like Solomon, who had 700 wives, as is noted uh, in the scripture, um, was a polygamist. Now, the distinction I want to give for you, and I want this to be firm in our hearts as we walk into the future, is not everything the Bible describes does it endorse. Just because men do bonehead things doesn't mean we should do bonehead things. In fact, when we begin to see Lamech, who's the first person, we'll get there in Genesis chapter 4, who is said to have two wives, it does not go well for Lamech. And the Bible is indicating that he has broken from the monogamous norm of marriage and you begin to see the strings of his life unravel. Would we not also suggest that even the wise Solomon was fairly unwise when it came to the 700 wives and his wives became a huge part of his undoing as a king? So to note that the pattern of monogamy is said in Genesis 2.24. It's reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19, and Paul in Ephesians 5, but it describes all of the various abuses um, throughout the world. And you just remember that, um, and I could have put this this on, (laughs) we'll get there. Um, There are all kinds of unions that take place in the Bible, like really bad ones, okay? The whole Judah Tamar thing, really weird. Uh, Noah and his daughters, really strange, Any of the sexuality that we're experiencing presently publicly is on the pages of Scripture. It addresses it in some way, shape, and form. But what you will see is it addresses it in the negative. So we make a decision between, we have to make a distinction between the Bible describing something and the Bible prescribing something. Those are two two different things. So a monogamous union is what's in view. And then sixthly, a symbolic union. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 33. Obviously, marriage at the end of the day is really, again, not about you and me. But it's about our reflection of the character of God. And that's what we're spending time on this morning. Let me jump to the purpose of sexuality uh, quickly. And I wanna, I've started, I'm starting with this point because I think it's so, it's so critical. Um, is Because we just this is not the language we think in. And maybe if I can just encourage you. Um, there it is. Turn to 1 Corinthians real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Why don't you just note this um, in, your, in your Bibles and come back to it. You might even write by it. But verses 12 through verse 20 deals with sexual immorality. And the passage is really important in the discussion of the purpose of our bodies and the purpose of sexuality. But w- here's what I want you to note. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. I won't interpret that for now. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's what he says, okay? The, bo- the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You would expect the, the, the back end of that verse to say, the body is meant for sexual morality, you know, or, or appropriate sexual intercourse between a husband and wife. You'd expect it to say that. That's not what it says. It says the body is for what? The Lord. Your body is for the Lord. Okay, so he makes this distinction here in the midst of this passage. He goes on down, if you'll look at verse 20. So glorify God in your body. Here's the point that Paul is actually making. He's going further than sexual morality. He's saying that your body at its core is God's body. And how it's used must be by the prescription of God's instructions in the Word of God. And its use must be to glorify God in your body. Okay, that's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think we have to start there because our body feels like ours. <laughs> like, right, I walk around it and I think of it as, as my body. And we talk about things like a woman's body and what's in her body is hers. And she can do with it what she wants. That's the logic here. It's not hers. <laughs> like As a Christian, your body is not yours. That's why we can make claims on it. Because <laughs> God makes claims on it. All right? It's an important fundamental piece that we raise up a generation that understands my body's not my own. It's been bought with a price. I have to glorify God in my body. Okay, very important. Four subordinate purposes of sexuality. Consummation of the marriage which in the Bible, consummation of marriage means actually the finishing of the marriage covenant. Okay, Meaning that your covenant in marriage is not finished the moment that you say, I do. But it's finished later at the marriage bed. That's the consummation of the covenant. If you look at old Hebrew patterns of marriage, they would actually bear witness to the fact that consummation happened. It was a part of the overall celebration that the couple went away, consummated their marriage, and came back to the celebration. Now, that weirds us out big time. But, but in the Hebrew culture, there was much more earthy and recognition that now they're married. It was seen as finality. It was seen as a finish. And thus, each sexual occurrence in marriage was seen as a covenant renewal It was seen as an expression of love, but a renewal of our vows. We're going back to our vows. We're finishing, as it were, marriage again. It was a part of covenant renewal. Secondly, bearing of children. And then fourthly, uh, pleasure. I'd love to spend more more time on, on all of those. But let me just wrap up by looking at the practice of biblical sexuality. The first thing in 1 Corinthians 7 is that sexuality is an essential and necessary part of married life. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is urging couples to have regular sexual intercourse with each other. I'm saying it directly so you can let it register. I say, and I'm saying it that way because this is an issue. This is an issue. And the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 says the way in which we bed down sexual temptation, the way in which we keep ourselves faithful to our covenant is through a regular sexual engagement 
with the one in whom we are married. Now, I love to go through the details of that. And for those of you in here who are thinking, I've, you know, there's abuse issues in past. There's all kinds of things going on. Listen, I'm paid. Come and talk to me. Okay? Don't hear this. I don't know your husband. I don't know your wife. I don't know what's going on. So hear that generally the Bible is saying on 1 Corinthians 7, you should have sex very regularly. Very regularly. It's good for you. It's important. And then secondly, the boundaries of a sexual union. I think this is one thing, again, wish I could talk about. Uh, boundaries of sexual union. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Part of what I think needs to be discussed more fully and faithfully is that we have such skewed notions of what sexuality is today. Sometimes because of conceptions through pornography, experiences of abuse as children, sexual encounters in high school or in college that were loose liaisons, and we bring this baggage with us into marriage and we expect certain things and we don't realize that now they're weighted and they create distortions on what should be a natural, beautiful, biblical sexual union. And sometimes what happens is the boundaries of that union are stretched beyond their original God-glorifying designs in ways that I do not believe serve the glory of God in the use of our bodies. So I've given you the questions there I think Feinberg is a good one, to ask, and this can go from sexual practices to the way in which we engage sexually together, asking a series of questions and going, is this glorifying to God? Does this display the kind of thing that Christ and his church is intended to explain? And I think what you'll begin to see is some of our aberrant sexual desires is more about us and has very little to do with him. And all of a sudden, when we begin thinking about God in the midst of our sexuality, it begins to give appropriate boundary and life to the beauty of what I hope is an ordinary sexual union that is faithful and beautiful for each of you who are married. Wish I could say more, but I hope this is helpful. Let me pray. Father, thank you for bearing with us as we seek uh, to inhabit a way of life and of practice that is faithful to you in our marriages and in our sexuality. We would ask, Lord, that you would help us in this. We have taken a precious gift that is meant for unity, and we have used it in in disunifying ways. And we have taken something that's meant to be beautiful, and we have marred it with sinful practice, and it has become ugly in so many regards. Forgive us and redeem us. And today, Father, knowing the stories in this room, encourage your people in all the ways that we need to be encouraged and grow us up sexually in our marriages and in our genders that we might bear faithful witness of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, friends.